Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T.com. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner Berry, here with executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel. Flatter, better, faster, stronger, work it, make it, do it, makes us. What are you talking about? Flatbreads and quickbreads. Oh, right. This isn't a Daft Punk tribute episode. Today, we're firing up the Tandoor, the Tanier, the Griddle, the Bastable the wok, and even a rock. All the flatbread cooking technologic we can think of. And because we're human after all, we'll finally let our producer-at-large, Connor O'Donovan, get lucky and talk about Irish soda bread. Flatbreads and quickbreads may seem like strange oven fellows, but hear us out. In the Venn diagram of bread baking, they both fall in the overlap of speed and differently leavened. Only have an hour? Here are your solutions. And all you really need to bake either one is a roaring fire and some rocks. So let's head back to the beginning of bread technology, way back to the Pleistocene era, with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. The oldest breads of mankind were almost certainly flatbreads. Flatbreads have the great feature that you really don't need any equipment for them. If you have a flat rock that you can put near the fire or in the fire, that works. So flatbreads were important because they were easy to make. You didn't require a fixed infrastructure. An oven is a big, difficult thing to build. And until you really know you want one, why would you build one? (laughs) Uh, So most uh, human cooking was done over open fires or a small contained fire, but without an oven. Ovens were, it's believed, were first uh, created for a very different purpose, which was to fire pottery, a, a kind of a kiln. Between a rock and a hard place, the way in which we baked bread began to change by the shape of an oven. 
One of the key pivotal moments in the history of breads and flatbreads was when they first started using an oven for bread. So one set of people says, right, we'll put the bread down on the floor of the oven. Now that's where we put our pots and we fire it, and well, let's put it on the floor. And another set of people says, I know, let's stick our bread to the ceiling. Now, it sounds silly when you put it like that, but in fact, uh, Indian naan and a variety of other breads from India all the way across over to Iran are, in fact, baked on the ceiling. The spread of flatbreads is a great argument against a flat earth. And ceiling breads, seen across the northern Indian subcontinent, as well as the South Caucasus, are typically baked in a tandoor. It's a type of oven that's often made of clay or metal and is cylindrical with an oculus-like opening at the top. And you reach in with your dough. Uh, typically, you put the dough on kind of a cushion. And you slap it up to the top of the oven, and it sticks. Sticks, if the oven's hot enough, that is. And then, in order to uh, take it off when you're done, you have this hook, basically, at the end of a stick that you use to hook it and pull it off. Now, this was sort of a seminal moment because... Uh, you could cook leavened flatbreads both ways. Naan, which is leavened, um, is a flatbread that's stuck up to the ceiling. Pita, which is a leavened flatbread, is baked on the floor. <laughs> but the thing is this, once you started sticking it to the ceiling, then you've got a strong tendency to continue to stick it to the ceiling. Now, this means you're never going to have pizza because, you know, um, Think about it, the toppings, all they wouldn't be toppings, they'd be bottomings, and they'd all fall to the floor. We started from the ceiling, now we're here. Or depending on where we are in the world, maybe we started on the floor. Mike Salamanoff, chef and co-owner of Zahav in Philadelphia, serves many traditional Israeli breads and had the chutzpah to elevate the pita. But not too much so, since, after all, it is a flatbread. We make lafa, which is, um, I guess it's a type of pita. Here's the misconception. So pita is not just the thing that pockets. Pita is sort of like this general term for bread. Kubes, which is like K-H-O-U-B-V, is the pita that pockets. Lafa, the style of... Um, Pita or bread that was brought to Israel by the Iraqi Jews. A lot of Iraqi and Indian cooking is really quite similar, depending on kind of where you are in India. So lafa, which is cooked typically on the side of like a beehive oven, kind of like naan, is very similar to naan. It bubbles a little bit. It's like a big sort of flatbread that gets whacked on the side of an oven and cooks very, very quickly at a very high temperature, the result being chewy, kind of pliable, but also crunchy. The bottom gets really crisp. Uh, the top is a little bit fluffy, and it doesn't do too much pocketing. We cook ours, actually, in like a sort of like a wood-burning pizza oven. So is Lafa just a pita pizza in the same line as bagel bites? Well, Lafa's got the sort of like yeasty sort of flat, I guess it's relatively neutral. I like to put a shitload of like, salsa and olive oil on it. 
which I think is delicious. And even with hummus, is like eaten pretty nicely. The lava that I make is, is um, relatively neutral. I mean, the, the za'atar has got a bit of bitter to it. And the olive oil is obviously quite strong. But it's really meant to be eaten with things, you know? It's meant to be shit out of me. I guess it really depends on how hungry you are. And if you were using this sort of finished flatbread to wrap around a kebab or falafel, it could be like sort of the shell to a wrap if you wanted it to be. From single serving bites to breads that carry the meal, there is a whole wheat world of flatbreads out there. Pei Wen Li, head baker at Hot Bread Kitchen, specializes in baking authentic multi ethnic breads with a mission. We make a couple from Iran, and that's the uh, Nani Kandi and Nani Babri. The Nani Babri is it's a long one with black and white sesame on top of it. And the nani kandi is brown, and the dough is enriched with honey and milk, so that's a little softer and a little more sweet. And then the other flatbreads we do are the Moroccan and salmon, which is our most popular item of all time. And then the last one we make is naan, so that's from India. That one we do over a grill. Aside from the gamut of grains they use, Hot Bread Kitchen's international catalog reiterates every culture has a flatbread. And while M7 is most popular, many customers still ask, what is it? So it's very simple bread that's laminated with oil and butter. The ingredients that make up the dough are pretty much, it's, it's nothing out of the ordinary. And the process of making it is actually very straightforward. Um, I don't know. I think, well, I think people like it because, well, first of all, I think it tastes great, very straightforward, and it's very versatile. So you could eat as a wrap. You could have it plain with honey for breakfast. I mean, some of the things I've tried doing with it is making pizza base out of it, or I've also tried to use it as a lasagna sheets. M seven as pizza or pasta. Whatever it's used as, M7 is certainly within the world of flatbreads. And the great thing about them is that you don't need much more than a home kitchen to get baking globally. We make them pretty much how people would make them at home. You know, the way our bakery is set up, it's not like we have a whole slew of commercial equipment that we're working with. You know, we use an oven. You have an oven at home. The naan and salmon, we cook them over the grill, just like how you would do it at home. You could do it over your cast iron or your fry pan. You know, we just do it over a flat top, which is the same concept. The flat top just allows us more surface area to cook more at the same time. You know, it's not very high-tech equipment, like like a pizza oven, you see a Domino's or something like that. And the nani barbie, we bake it in, in our bread oven, I, I don't think that we've made a lot of um, measures to commercialize it. We're still sticking very much to the artisan type of production. You know, it's not the first bread that comes to mind. I don't think that flatbreads are easier, but I think they're not made very often because people don't think about them. I think a lot of knowledge around bread centers around French or German type breads. And a lot of flatbreads, they come from the Middle East or, or Mediterranean countries. When you think of those countries, 
the first thing that comes to mind is not bread. But the cuisines of many countries are built on their flatbreads or wrapped in them. Kate Leahy, author of the forthcoming Lavash the Book, traveled to the Caucasus with a flatbread in the forefront of her mind. Lavash is the, it's, it's basically the national bread of Armenia. It's eaten breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's always there. It's just a, an integral part of the culture. What's remarkable about Lavash is it's probably one of the oldest styles of bread in, in the world. The, the, where Armenia um, exists today used to be a much larger country. And that area that now consists of parts of eastern Turkey was really a breadbasket uh, where a lot of grain cultivation occurred. So I think what happened was it's, it's a very rustic bread. It's basically a thin dough that you bake against the wall of a clay oven that's dug into the ground, the tonir. And there's so many variations of tonirs um, throughout the world. But what's amazing about it is that it doesn't take very much to make lavash. You need you need some flour, some water, either some old dough or um, a little bit of yeast. And then you need a hot fire and a hot surface. Part of lavash's role in Armenian ritual and folklore is the importance of bread to culture as a symbol of fertility and fortune. Because of that, there was a lot, a lot of um, folklore surrounding grains and flatbread. And for lavash, for a wedding ritual, they would drape lavash over, over the bride, and she had to walk into maybe her new home, and the bread couldn't fall off her shoulders, or that was like a bad, bad luck. You know, children are always warned not to drop it on the ground. That would bring bad luck, probably because it was like, this is a really valuable thing for us. It takes a lot of work to grow this grain, and then to mill it, and then to actually make this bread. Lavash is the opposite of a veiled attempt at bread baking. It's honored in its shape and form, and exists in the forefront of Armenian life. When Kate was in Armenia researching for the book, she found herself in the suburbs of Yerevan, the capital, with her co-authors, John Lee and Arazada, to gather around a familiar oven. And we went there because we were told the neighbors had gotten together to fire up the tonir and bake lavash together. And we're thinking, you know, maybe just a little casual um, baking session. But we get there, and there's four women surrounding the tonir, and each one has a different task. One is rolling the dough, one is stretching the dough, and one of them is putting the dough into the tonir, and another one is taking the bread out of the tonir using a little bit of like this hook. And that's all going because they are making thousands of sheets of lavash. They're on top of the roof and through every single uh, floor in the house, they're drying it. They're drying it on like sort of bed sheets and they dry it. And once it's dry, they stack it up in a spare bedroom because it's too cold in the winter in Armenia to want to go outside and, and cook by the tonir. So they decide they'll just bake a ton of it and use it all winter long and share it with the neighbors. Stockpiling sheets of lavash for the winter is like cellaring or pickling. But isn't freshly baked bread better? And the way that they bring it back to life is they spritz it with a little bit of water um, and maybe cover it with a towel. It returns its pliability. So you can make it. You can make it in this mass amount. And because the climate there is dry, you know, there's, they don't have to worry about mold. There's no staling. It's just it basically turns from a dry cracker to back to wonderful sort of malleable lavash that you can wrap around herbs or eat with cheese, or dip into your hush. 
So is Lavash the Lazarus of flatbreads? Or is the miracle that many Armenians still survive the winter by reviving pre-baked flatbreads? Halfway across the world, Kate learned to enjoy them fresh off the walk. So one thing we had to really think about early on in, in doing research for the Lavash cookbook was, okay, it would be nice if we could say, and build a tonier in your backyard. But you know, I live in San Francisco. I don't even have a backyard that I could dig a tonier in. I also kind of thought, well, if you live in Yerevan, you also don't really have a tonier in your, your high rise. So how, how would you make lavash at home if you don't have a, you know, you don't have a tonier in the backyard? The trick is really not that you need a tonier, but that you need a hot surface. We found a griddle works really well. The one thing that I thought was the, the home run was using an overturned wok over a gas burner. It was a seasoned wok. It has that natural, you know, nonstick surface. I, I turned it over. I got it really, really hot to the point where you, you know, water just immediately evaporates off the surface. And then I draped the the stretched out lavash over it. It's like maybe somebody went through, you know, a, a wok cooking stage and they're like, oh, now I have another reason to dig out the, the wok and re-season it and dust it off. <laughs> well, if you don't have a wok, but have a Home Depot nearby, some time on your hands, and a backyard to boot, Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, can teach you how to DIY another type of oven. We have a set of instructions in the book on how to build a tandoor oven. We got everything from a like a hardware store, and it was about three hundred bucks to get the whole thing. And then we built it here. It's you know the biggest thing is like this 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 really old. I don't want to call it technology, but maybe it is technology. But it it's it's basically creating a very hot environment, a very insulated hot environment uh, that you get it so hot that you can bake things very quickly inside or cook things very quickly in it. And, you know, most tenders are underground, uh, but this one is an oil barrel that we put on wheels because it's easier to transport. We bought like this really big terracotta planter and we cut the base out and put it in like upside down. So it's like this conical shape. And then between the barrel and the planter, we put vermiculite. It really helps to like keep the heat inside the terracotta planter. Underneath, there's a space where you could put like charcoal, lit charcoal. Close it, it gets hot very quickly. It stays hot for a long period of time. Is it an ancient technology we're unearthing? Or just an abiding acuity towards gathering around a heat source, which happened to lead to people getting hungry? But that's kind of key with a lot of flatbreads is, is to bake them on a screaming hot surface because it needs to be fast. When you bake flatbreads on a tandoor, so you just slap it on the side and it cooks the side that is slapped on the, on the pot, but also whatever's radiating from the other side heat, so it cooks the surface as well. You won't be able to flip it over because it's like basically floating, right? So you need that heat to radiate from, from the, the side that is not stuck to the pot to basically cook it on that side as well. So if you're tired of waiting for pizza delivery or need more naan to go with your curry, embrace the DIY spirit. While you run out to the hardware store, we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. Do you like eating with your hands? Flatbreads are more than just delicious, they're functional. 
And one of our favorites, which you'll hear about after the break, is injera. This spongy Ethiopian flatbread is an indispensable part of the meal. It's typically made from teff flour and is sourdough started, giving it that acidic edge to enliven everything you eat it with. If you want to experiment with injera, Bob's Red Mill has a whole grain teff flour that's perfect for the job. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they've been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses. We've talked about how we use our Le Creuset Dutch ovens to make country boules, but if flatbreads are what you're after, a griddle's the way to go. Le Creuset makes a whole range of griddles in different shapes and sizes. Their smooth surface is coated with Le Creuset's protective satin black enamel to prevent damage and wear. Over time, this slightly abrasive finish develops a natural patina that is ideal for searing and browning meat. So if you don't have time to DIY a tandoor, or room for a tanier in your backyard, get your griddle screaming hot, slap down the dough, and you'll be on your way to a perfect flatbread. Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty, only from Le Creuset. Visit lecreuset.com backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with the code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. It may be nearing those winter months, but when it comes to baking, we're often hearing about oven spring. Nathan Mirvold reminds us that with flatbreads, it's rarely about their rise. Now, the other thing that's great about flatbreads is you don't require a lot of leavening power. There are many leavened flatbreads. Uh, Probably the flattest leavened flatbread (laughs) is uh, injera, which is this uh, Ethiopian uh, bread from the Horn of Africa region. And injera doesn't particularly look risen. It doesn't have a big fluffy crumb. Uh, But if you look at it, it's covered with bubble marks because it it is a bubbly sourdough that you're actually cooking. Injera comes up pretty early in bread's history. So early, in fact, that the modernist cuisine team chose to recreate it as the first bread. You know, the conventional story of the history of bread is that bread was, first people would say 6,000 years and then it, that sort of crept back to about eh, ten to 15,000 years old. It made sense in a way because people said, well, look, that's when large-scale grain agriculture started. We have good archaeological evidence of large-scale grain agriculture, and so, of course, you couldn't have bread before then. But then a uh, Canadian anthropologist was studying a cave in Mozambique, and he found a set of pounding stones that had been used to pound grain into flour. Now, you know that they were used for this because the stones still had the remnants of the grain embedded in them. And the whole thing dated to 100,000 years ago. So here you have the, the possibility that bread making 
was actually 100,000 or 90,000 years earlier than it was, a factor of 10 difference. And that story also makes sense. The story being, look, before you would go and deliberately grow a plant, why would you go and deliberately grow it if you didn't like eating it in the first place? Right? You didn't say, well, look, someday we're going to enjoy eating grain, so let's start learning how to grow it first. The grain on those pounding stones was sorghum, which is used to make injera in parts of Ethiopia where its more typical grain, teff, doesn't grow. And since the residue was on pounding tools, they knew it was for flour rather than porridge or beer. And the recipe is pretty simple. You take sorghum and flour, you mix it with water, you let it sit, and it starts bubbling away into a sourdough, and then you pour it over hot rock. Well, hey, we can do that. So we got a nice big round stream rock. We got it super hot. (laughs) I built a fire around it. And we poured this uh, sorghum sourdough over the top and took a picture of what we argued was the first bread. Well, a really interesting thing happened. I'd forgotten to grease the top of the rock. So we poured it on. It's like, oh, shit, I didn't grease it. Well, maybe hopefully we'll get our picture you know, like taken once because otherwise, you know, it'll cook on and there'll be like, no way we'll get this rock clean again. But no. As the thing cooked, the edges peeled away, and the whole thing eventually popped right off. So, uh, totally unbeknownst to us, uh, totally unexpected, it turns out baking sorghum (laughs) gruel or sorghum sourdough batter on top of a hot rock is nonstick. Who knew? Nonstick services are engineered for efficiency. Maybe. So are flatbreads? One of the things that's great about flatbreads is that it's relatively quick to make. So virtually every culture has some kind of flatbread. This was frustrating when we were working on modernist bread because I kind of like being comprehensive and having everything, but it's like, oh my God, how do you really have all the flatbreads? So our, our first decision was to say that bread had to be leavened. Well, that takes a whole bunch of flatbreads off the table, so to speak. The Vikings had a flatbread called lefsa, uh, which is made either with wheat or with potato, interestingly enough. But it's not leavened, so lefsa was off the, the table and chapati were off the table. But there's still a ridiculous number of leavened flatbreads. One of the most universal foods in mankind is some kind of a flatbread. The universality of flatbreads is shown by their ability to have traversed the globe. But it begs the question, what's the thin line between flatbread and a cracker? Mike Solomonoff certainly has some thoughts about it, as have Jews for more than 40 years. So I don't view a cracker as a flatbread, even though it kind of is. I feel like flatbreads should still be relatively yeasted. I mean, there's some lavashes that aren't, but... I view flatbreads as like probably a little bit more substantial. Matzah to me is more of a cracker, but I don't, I mean, there's no, like, I don't think there's any right or wrong. I think it's all like emotional, you know? And I was thinking about this now, like what is the difference between the tortilla, corn or flour versus what it is that I make and how is it sort of present, presented? I mean, tortillas, 
are used to wrap tacos. If they were just made much bigger, it wouldn't be like dissimilar to like, you know, shawarma and masa. I mean, except for that, there's corn obviously being used or masa being used and lard to make the this sort of shell. But it's not that. It's like not that far off. It's gluten in one and not in the other. I think that for me, like I think that lafa and pita and sort of before pita became like a sandwich. But the kubes and the lafa and the naan were almost like replacement for silverware, you know? They were kind of ripped off, and that's how you ate things. Flatbreads can function as sandwiches and silverware, but what counts as a flatbread? Francisco Magoya highlights the taxonomy they used for modernist bread. You know, just to go back in time a little bit, when we were deciding what flatbreads to include in the book... The, the most important thing that they had to have was actual yeast. You know, the term is flat bread. Why do they need yeast? And the answer is that they don't really re- need yeast for the volume properties that it produces. You incorporate yeast into recipes because yeast has enzymatic activity that it produces in the dough that gives the dough a particular texture and a particular taste. It is a you know, and aroma, right? I mean, so it, it provides the flavor that, like if you have a flour tortilla, it doesn't really taste bready, right? Uh, but if you have a pita or a naan, it does taste bready, and that's because of, of the yeast that is in it. So yeast pr- provides that sort of flavor profile that, that makes the distinction between non-yeasted flatbreads and yeasted flatbreads. We were doing a lot of testing now with, with our pizza book that we're working on, uh, to the point where we did make some doughs with, without any yeast to see what happens, right? I mean, you're putting it in a screaming hot oven. Shouldn't the steam alone be enough to you know, expand the dough? And the answer is that it's not, because you have yeast also pr- produces nucleation points with CO2 throughout the dough. Um, so this is gas that when it gets hot, it's going to expand as well. If there wasn't yeast there to do that, you're not going to have this nice open crumb structure that you expect from pizzas. You know that bready taste, right? It's undeniable, unreplicable, as are those open crumbs we've come to expect. But is yeast the only way to get a rise out of breads? How about something a little quicker? We're bringing back a fine lad from last season of Modernist Breadcrumbs, our intrepid producer-at-large, Connor O'Donovan, so he can finally have a say about his national treasure, Irish soda bread. Connor went straight to hometown hero Darina Allen, founder of Ballymaloo Cookery School in County Cork. Soda bread is considered to be the bread of our country here in Ireland. And a lot of people think it's a very long and ancient tradition. But actually, people didn't really start to make what we now refer to as soda bread until after the 1840s. And that's when bicarbonate of soda, or baking soda, was introduced into Ireland. But when bicarbonate of soda became more widely available, obviously, then people really embraced this because it was here in Ireland the type of wheat that we grow is a sort of soft wheat, a low-gluten wheat. And so it was not suitable for making yeast bread. Mm. And also people's battery de cuisine at that time, so Mm. to speak, was very, very simple. Most people cooked over an open fire. So this was a bread that all you needed was flour and salt, bicarbonate of soda, and, of course, 
uh, some uh, so buttermilk and mm. many people would have had either they would have had a cow themselves or else their neighbours would have had a cow. So this is long before electricity. So, of course, after a couple of days, that milk would have naturally soured and become more acidic. And the whole process of making soda bread, when the bicarbonate of soda, which is an alkali, Mm. uh, reacts with the lactic acid in the milk, and that creates little bubbles of carbon dioxide, and then they expand in the heat of the oven or the pot oven, the bastable, Mm. as people used to cook a lot of the soda bread at that time, they would have cooked it over the open fire. Mm. A bastable, or pot oven, is an iron pot placed on embers, with more embers put along the lid for even heating. Just like the early flatbreads we've talked about in this episode, early soda bread was cooked on an open fire. When I was a child, I would be sent on holidays to a county Tipperary to have holidays in, uh, and get some bog air at my cousins who lived near Two Mile Burris. And my great aunt, um, Lil, uh, and my uncle Bob, and they had in their house a huge big open fireplace with a crane and the big three-legged pots and the basketball and everything. And even though they were quite, in fact well off as mm. in, in relatively speaking my great uncle bob was a great traditionalist and he absolutely refused to have the open fire uh, blocked yes. up and everything yes. so my great aunt uh, cooked the bread and everything actually pretty much i just caught the end of that era i learned how to bake over the open fire many people of my age now would no longer know how to do this Bastables are mostly just fond memories now, thanks to the convenience of modern ovens. No need to shovel coals, just turn a knob or press a button. A soda bread tradition of different sorts persists, though. When you made your loaf of soda bread, then you would cut across a deep cross in the center. And that was a traditional blessing. Uh, And also then you'd prick it in the four corners and it depends on what part of the country, but some would say to let the devil out (laughs) and other uh, other people said to let the fairies out. And we still do that. And I was every class I teach, I say to people, now it's really important to let the fairies out of the bread. Otherwise they'll jinx your bread. A perfect loaf of soda bread may well look like a fairy's side home, but it's not where they're meant to dwell. So score the cross, prick the corners, and send the fairies back into the wilderness. The added flourish doesn't take long. Uh, And of course, the other great thing about soda bread is it's literally made in minutes. Mm, So it's not like sourdough or something where ideally there's a 12 or 48 hour fermentation. So if you suddenly discover you're out of bread, Mm. uh, you just turn on the oven uh, and you put some flour into a bowl, Mm. uh, add some salt and bicarbonate of soda, and then, you know, make sure it's well mixed through, run your hands through it to make sure the salt and bicarbonate soda is well mixed through. Make a little well in the centre, pour in the buttermilk mm. and then make your hand into a claw sort of thing like mm-hmm. that. And then start in the centre and stir in a full circular movement mm. out to the outside of the bowl. And then the bread is made. Just mm. flour the worktop, turn it out, just tidy it around the edges, flip it over and then cut the deep cross in it and then... Uh, I I did the fairies of the devil out. So it's made literally as fast as I spoke about it there. The soda bread we most often see in the United States is what the Irish know as spotted dog, with its bits of fruit and caraway seeds. The addition of caraway makes it what Darina calls emigrant soda bread, because spices would have been hard to get on small Irish farms. The classic soda bread in Ireland is more like what one of Darina's favorite cooking writers Nora Laverty describes. She describes the wonderful soda bread made by 
somebody called Mrs. Feeney in mm. her parish. And I quote here, when it came to making plain soda bread, there was no one in the county Kildare who could hold a candle to her. The dough of her bread was as light and as white as bog cotton. The crust was always brittle and richly brown, with never a crack or a seam. The shape had a symmetry usually to be seen only in advertisements, and the flavour was the true, sweet, nutty flavour of a perfectly baked wheat. I mean, how beautiful is that? I wish I could write like that. <laughs> it's so lovely. Yeah. It's hard to find an Irish cookbook without a recipe for soda bread. To dig more into the culinary canon, Connor called up cookbook historian Dorothy Cashman. There has been a certain received amount of literature about it, you know, the mid-1800s and everything like that. So it made me go back and actually question some of that. And now I have a headache from um, potassium carbonates and sodium bicarbonates and trying to figure out what the hell they're all talking about because I think they use the terminology in quite a loose way. Obviously there's a big chemistry element as well. Yeah, and I am not a chemist, I can tell you. Yeah, that's gas. How all these people were experimenting with these chemical leavening agents and then there's gradual, there's a gradual then move into sodium bicarbonate in the late 1840s. It's interesting because you mentioned that sodium bicarbonate uh, when that arrived in Ireland, that was kind of the advent of soda bread, or is that not really the, the case? It's it's the advent of the soda bread that we make, because sodium bicarbonate is such an easy thing to use. But before that, before sodium bicarbonate was readily available and commercialised, people were experimenting with potassium carbonate, and it, it really it was happening across the Atlantic as well at the same time, because... Amelia Simmons, who, you know, she's the first American cookbook, American Cookery, 1796. She uses this uh, potassium carbonate in, re- in recipes for gingerbread. So it's being used as a leavening agent. And then gradually it's appearing in more bread-like products. This is what the best describe it. This is 1821. And they describe it as a kind of biscuit much used in the United States of America. I take two pounds of wheat and flour, half a pound of butter, which must be had. Now they half a pound of sugar, there's a lot of sugar, obviously we wouldn't do that, combined with a, a pint of milk, salt of tartar, or crystals of soda, or any other pure potash dissolved in a small quantity of water. The whole is to be carefully mixed and kneaded together. When properly rolled, it may be formed into cakes, which ought to be exposed to the brisk heat of an oven, as their lightness depends much on the expedition with which they are baked. Now that is the essence of soda bread. Yeah, that sounds pretty recognisable. <laughs> Yeah, it's very recognisable, but it's not sodium bicarbonate because sodium bicarbonate wasn't around, you know, it was just before sodium bicarbonate. And it very much follows recipes across the Atlantic at the same time. Those early recipes across the Atlantic where they're using um, Amelia Simmons and uh, Mary Randolph, where they're using pearlash, people described the products as having a slightly soapy taste. Right. (laughs) So yeah, kind of far from ideal, I guess. Yeah, and again, an, an intriguing reference in an Irish uh, commonplace books, you know, commonplace books are the kind of diaries that people kept, you know, they jotted down things and things like this. And this is actually kept by a man in Carrick on Shore, and it's 1801. And he has jotted down a little Castile soap dissolved in water and mixed with a little leaven makes the lightest bread. So they were obviously all experimenting madly all over the place. Yeah, that's really funny. I mean, Castile soap has an alkali that is an alkali that would be good for bread making if you handle it properly. Not that I'd be advocating it nowadays, but 
you see where I'm coming from with this? I see what you're saying. Yeah, it creates a chemical reaction in the same way that sodium bicarbonate would. That's fascinating. They would observe it, you know, behaving in one way, and then they use it to make food. That's a that's crazy. So basically, um, what you're kind of saying is even you know with the potassium bicarbonate recipes, those also originated elsewhere. But then when people started using sodium bicarbonate, that didn't necessarily really originate in Ireland either. That was kind of like an imported product and imported practice, was it or? Well, sodium, uh, sodium bicarbonate became available, and I don't imagine that Irish people were the only people to use it. I think soda bread, is, you know, it, it touches those chords for Irish people. It's it's home and heart. It's it's family. It's all of those things. Now, interesting. Will it survive into the next generation? For a generation obsessed with instant gratification, there should be nothing better than a quick bread until live streaming has smell-o-vision. Although they don't fit under the purview of modernist bread, co-author Francisco Magoya was kind enough to share a few quick thoughts. So a quick bread got its name for a reason. Uh, I mean, it's a lot faster. It's a different animal completely. It's something that a lot of people could more readily and easily do. You don't need to plan that much to make a quick bread. As long as you have cold butter and flour and, you know, chemical leavener, you can pretty much make a quick bread at any moment. It's such a large genre uh, because it goes from an Irish soda bread, which is not bread-like. I mean, I call it that, but it's not bread-like. It's more like a dense pound cake. A pound cake is a quick bread, but so is a scone. How are these related? They're not. They're just, you can make them quickly. <laughs> so should we call breads slow breads i mean you know like what why are we calling all of these very different things the same thing is the scale of difference between a scone and soda bread the same as the difference between lava and lavash we have these engulfing categories of bread quick and flat but there's so much nuance size shape ingredients oven floor or ceiling why do we take some more seriously than others when they're all wheat you know, honestly, a lot of these have a lot of sugar in them. So you can get away with a lot more. A lot of people's palates are a lot more forgiving if there's a bunch of fat and a bunch of sugar in some. A lot of these, they also share the trade of that they use really low protein flours because you don't want any gluten or minimal. You don't want any gluten, period. And so you use cake flour, pastry flour. Some all-purpose flours are very low in protein, so they're utilized for all these quick breads. They are their own animal. I wouldn't even... Uh, fathom looking at them in the same light as bread, even though they're called quick breads. It's really a matter of inches as to how we classify what counts as bread, whether it's fast or slow, flat or fluffy. Around the world and throughout time, bread has stolen a pita our hearts as national treasure, folkloric ritual, and daily sustenance. In music, flat means lower in pitch, and these flatbreads have often suffered a lesser reputation. It's a difference between major and minor, but it's time to stop thinking about them as rudiments and embrace their full scale of possibility. Flat notes are half steps, and these flatbreads and quickbreads are barely steps away from what we think we know as bread.
This has been episode 12 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Flatter, Better, Faster, Stronger. In the next episode, we'll hop in our Win a Bread Go and take a road trip around America's regional breads. Special thanks this week to Mike Solomonov, Pei Wen Lee, Kate Leahy, Darina Allen, and Dorothy Cashman. And a huge Gavramagat to our producer at large, Connor O'Donovan, for producing all the Irish soda bread content that never made it into the oven last season. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkell and me, Jordan Werner Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osband. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening.